We are going to look at 1 Timothy together um, as a new series we're beginning today to study through the book of 1 Timothy, but I want you to turn your Bibles to Acts. Acts, that's the first place we are going to read, because today will be more of an introduction to the book of 1 Timothy. And um, 1 Timothy, I think many pastors are, myself included, scared of 1 Timothy because of chapter 2. If you've never read it, you should just read it and you can come back to me and, and then say, I understand now. Okay, so you can just read chapter 2 in your own time. That's homework. Okay. Um, but we will first begin at Acts 20 to see a background of, of this letter. So when asked in the interview, what is wrong with modern churches today? And I think probably in the context of America, Paul Washer gave a very simple answer. He said, it's pastors. Pastors. That's the problem of churches today. If you think about it, it makes sense. As the leaders go, so goes the church. As the pulpit goes and what is being taught from the pulpit, so goes the health of the church. If there's a corruption from the top, it will filter down. If, if the church is nothing but motivational speaking, feel-good messages, but not true food, then the sheep will be sick due to malnutrition. And this was the main problem in the book of 1 Timothy. Pastors went astray. Elders, those at the top. And the book was written mainly for Paul, from Paul to, to Timothy to correct and to restore the church back to Christ. So originally I was simply planning to do a few sermons on deacons from 1 Timothy because that's uh, in chapter 3 we see that. But then I asked myself, why don't we just do the whole book? Because we're Baptist. That's what we do. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that we can appreciate the flow of the whole book and really get, uh, really get the main point as well. So this afternoon, plan is simple. We're going to do background, the main theme. And then from next week, we'll move through this book passage by passage. So for the background, we're looking at Acts 20. The church which Timothy was meant to correct was the church at Ephesus. At Ephesus. Acts 20, the church at Ephesus was already established and Paul has uh, installed elders in this local church. <clears throat> elders slash pastor slash overseer, it's used interchangeably, okay? And then he calls them and he, he, he look at verse 17. So Acts 20 and we'll read from verse 17. <clears throat> now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So just again, by the way, the word elder just refers to the maturity of the, the leader. Because remember, Timothy was uh, functioning as a leader, but remember what he said, do not let anyone despise you for your youth. So it wasn't necessarily wrong to be young and an elder. It is just the elder refers to the, the pastor must be a mature Christian. It shouldn't be a new convert. But also in the Bible, the word elder, the word pastor, the word overseer, it's actually just different words for the same person from different angles. So that's just on a side note. Now, as we look at what Paul says, look at how much input the church at Ephesus received from Paul. Okay, let's read from 18 to 27. Listen to what Paul says. And when they came, the pastors came to him. He said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials, what happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I am, I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Wow, what amazing input this church has received from Paul. Later, we'll see that he spent three years at Ephesus, three years of, of, of constant teaching, constant uh, teaching about the whole counsel of God. It took him three years. He's definitely not a Baptist, right? It takes three years for us to get through one book. He took three years and he taught the whole counsel of God. And I just want to say I'm working on that. Okay. I am really working on that. But notice that he taught them the truth no matter how difficult it might have been for them to hear it. Look at verse 27 again. It says, I did not shrink from declaring to you. So the idea of the word shrink, I did not, some translations say, back down, hold back, hesitate. They had the truth. And Paul wasn't afraid to tell them the truth, as it is. As one Puritan said, truth is most beautiful unadorned. The truth, for truth to shine, it needs to be stated plainly. And that's what Paul did. He, he taught them clearly and plainly. But then Paul gives the elders the serious charge in verse 28. Look at 28. It says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Do you feel the weight of this charge? Take care of the church. And by the way, the church is that those people that God bought with his blood. You should love these people, these sheep that Jesus died for. But what's the very first thing he tells them to do? That's interesting. What is the first thing they should watch out for? What, what's the first thing they should pay careful attention to? Did you catch it in verse 28? Look at the first line. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Before you take care of the church, take care of your own soul, pastor. Watch yourself that sin doesn't creep into the door of your heart. Watch yourself, pastor, lest you preach to others and you yourself go to hell. It's very, and for us, for, I don't know if there's any other pastors here in the room. So as an application for us, it's very possible to be busy with the things of the Lord and not of the Lord of the things. It's busy. You're busy, but your heart is far from the Lord. It is a danger to be always reading your Bible, thinking of your next Instagram post or your next Facebook post, but not thinking of your heart. We should read the Bible for our own souls. And nowhere is this more true than for pastors. This is a, this is a peculiar danger for, for me as a pastor, for pastors everywhere. I'll skip my quiet time today. I have to do sermon prep. Right? Or I just have, or I'll skip my unburdening of my heart to the Lord. I mean, there's just so many needs to take care of. And for most of us, it could just simply be just excuses not to have your time with the Lord, right? such a busy time. I'm writing exams. I'm, and before you know it, it's the slippery slope. It's a slow fade. 
I just want to relax and watch something for a while. I'll pray afterwards. And you say your amen in the morning, right? You pray in the night, you say your amen in the morning because you fall asleep. And that trend, that slow decay of the soul, is what Paul anticipated will happen to these pastors. Look at what he says next in verse 29 to 30. He says, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, this was probably revealed to Paul by the Holy Spirit that he could know this. And he said, I know there's going to come men from you, from the pastors, that's going to that's, that's be like wolves. They're going to not spare the flock. They're going to speak twisted things. They're going to be hungry wolves. They will not spare the flock. They won't fear God. They will take. They will be greedy for money. They will use the pulpit. They will use the Bible to get rich. They will, they will exploit your compassion. They will disagree with the gospel and godliness and holy living. They will feed themselves instead of the hungry sheep. So again, Paul warns them in verse 31. He says, therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Stay awake. Don't just wait for things to get to the point of destruction. The moment you see this tiniest evidence of this drift, repent immediately. Sad to say, I see this happening a lot in marriages. Right? People come to me for counseling with marriage and the divorce papers are already in. It's already signed, and now they want to say it's too late. I want to almost say to them, "Why didn't you come ten years earlier? Why didn't you come five years earlier?" Like now, when your whole marriage is already broken and fallen apart, deal with the issues quickly. Seek help soon, right when you need it. And the same thing that Paul is saying here is, stay awake, pastors. When you see the slightest false doctrines, the slightest heresy, the deal with it. Be alert. That's the background. So now we're ready for 1 Timothy. Turn now with me to 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy. And sadly, what we see happening in 1 Timothy is that Paul's prediction about these elders came true. Because he is an apostle of Christ. And people were turning away from the truth, turning away from the gospel, turning away from the Bible and, 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 and the Lord Jesus. They were false teachers amongst the elders. And so that's why Paul wrote 1 Timothy, to restore the church to health, to vigor. And that would be like my main summary of the whole book of 1 Timothy would be restoring the church. Now for us, we are a new church, we are a church plant. So for us, it might not be restoring, but to build the church on this foundation of what we see in 1 Timothy. And what, what Paul is saying is ensure that the false teachers are silenced Ensure that men and women know their role in the church. And that's chapter two. That's your homework. Okay. Make sure that the church is, the leaders are qualified with biblical elders and biblical deacons. And Timothy, watch your own life as well. That could be a summary of the whole book. So to get a feel of this internal tension, this internal problems in the Ephesian church, let's just consider a few passages. So look at what Paul says in his opening words in verses three to four. Chapter one, verse three to four. Paul says, 
as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. This was his main task, one of his main tasks. Some people have started to teach strange doctrines, myths, going on in detail on genealogies. You get the idea. It's almost like a kind of Jewish legalism that started creeping in. Look at verse 6 to 7. It says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And then Paul names leaders that have gone astray. Look at verse 19 to 20. Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting that some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Consider also that what these teachers started to, t- to teach in chapter 4. Just turn to chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teaching of demons. Now, if, if I were to ask you, what are the teachings of demons, right? You would probably have in your mind pentagrams, cats being offered on an altar, right? Something like that. Look at what Paul calls teaching of demons in verse 2 and 3. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So we see legalism, but now we also see asceticism. Asceticism. Forbidding good things God has given us, saying off limits, if you want to be really holy, don't marry, right? Paul calls that the teaching of demons, to forbid marriage and to abstain from foods. Remember, demons are smarter than we think, right? We think demons come to us with claws and fangs. No, demons come to us with these kind of, do you want to be really holy? Bacon out. Okay? (laughs) And they like, look, there's even a verse in the Old Testament. Let me show you, right? Marriage, why be occupied? Why be bogged down with this relationship that's going to always make you think about the concerns of your wife or your husband? Don't be, that's so worldly. That's so earthly. If you want to be heavenly minded, do you see how, like, it sounds good, but behind that beautiful voice is a wolf, is a serpent desiring to destroy your life. Really actually saying, did God really say that's, that's the essence of this. But then, so we have legalism, we have asceticism, which just means um, abstaining from good things God has given us. But now, lastly, we also see materialism. Materialism was a problem. Money, the love of money was a mark of these false teachers. They thought that they could use their godliness as a means to get rich. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. Chapter 6 now, verse 5 says, There's constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They imagine that their godliness is a means to get money, to get rich. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
So really, we could summarize those isms, right? Legalism, asceticism, and materialism. Maybe asceticism could fall under legalism as well. So you could put it in two groups. So they were essentially saying this. In legalism, they say, it's all about what you do. You have to keep these laws in the Old Testament before you will be saved. And materialism says, it's all about what you have. It's all about what you have in this life. This is the false teaching, the cancer that has started to eat up the the church from the inside out. And Paul's response for Timothy is to guard the gospel, to protect this gospel. The gospel says exactly the opposite of these isms. In essence, the gospel says not, it is all about what you do. What does the gospel say to us? The good news, it's all about what Christ has done for us. Do you see the difference there? There's freedom, there's rest, there's, ironically, true godliness. When you rest in the grace of Christ, your heart change and therefore your life change. Materialism says it's all about what you have. And the gospel says it's all about what you get when Jesus comes back. So be free from your love of money. You can give your money away. Because Christ is coming. Eternity is coming. And we see both of those themes coming through in the book. Just turn back again to chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, the whole Bible is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. But this is trustworthy, trustworthy. This is really, really believe, like like Jesus says, truly, truly, right? Okay, true, true. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul says, this is the trustworthy saying, not you have to keep the law to be saved, but that Christ came into the world to save us. Sinners like us. And he uses Paul. Say, look at Paul. If he can save Paul, he can save you. He is the chief. You're not going to beat him. Okay? And this is always going to be number one. The biggest sinner. And God saved him just to make a point. Look at my patience with you. If I was so patient with Paul on his way to kill Christians, what, what makes you think you can't come to me for grace? Right? It's all about what Christ done. And now notice again how Paul focuses on the second coming with materialism in chapter 6. Let's turn there. <clears throat> chapter 6, from verse 13 to 19. So we're going to read this whole section. <clears throat> it says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his, his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, 
ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take all of that which is truly life. <clears throat> Notice Jesse says, it's not sinful to be rich. He doesn't tell the rich to sell all their possessions and become poor. He says, don't set your hope on riches and use your riches in such a way that you show that Jesus is your treasure, not money. Use your money in such a way so that you lay up for yourself a treasure in the future. What do you think he's referring to there? <clears throat> he's thinking about the same words of Jesus, Matthew 6, verse 19. Sorry, these verses are not going to be on the screen. <clears throat> he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, this is the summary of this book. He says, it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done for us. It's not about what you have. It's about what you get when Jesus returns. And beautifully, Paul shows both of those themes in the very first verse of the letter. So turn to 1 verse 1. <clears throat> Notice 1 verse 1. He says, <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Did you see both of those themes? Who is God? He is our Savior. He saves us. We don't do that. God loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes will be saved. It is Christ that hang on a tree for us, paid for our, all of our sins. And it's simply when you look to him and put your faith in him that you're saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, including you. Do it now. Do it right there where you sit seated now. Look to Christ by faith and cast yourself like that, that thief on the cross that just rolled his soul onto the Savior. He says, Lord, think about me. In that moment, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's all. <laughs> and what is Jesus called in verse 1? God is our Savior and Jesus is our, our hope. Where does that point us to? His second coming. That's where our eyes belong. It is there that we will be restored and we will inherit everything. Matthew 5, 3 or 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. That's everything. That's, you don't have to live in, in the best homes now. It's yours when Jesus comes. That frees you not to use your house as a museum, that people might just spectate and just dare not make my house dirty, but rather free you up to use your house as a hospital for the sick, as people that can come and, and be with us to know Christ, to serve the Lord and not mammon, to show that Jesus is our treasure, not possessions. Therefore, Paul writes this letter to encourage young Timothy to restore the church to this, to this gospel. 
This church was drifting from their first love. They stopped being amazed at grace. They stopped. They forgot Jesus is coming back. And practically, Timothy needed to do this by installing leaders, elders and deacons that are qualified. And as the pastors are gripped by this gospel, the church will be healthy again. Look at chapter 3, verse 14 to 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is supposed to be the pillar of the truth, upholding the truth, protecting the truth. And Jesus is the truth. So if we lose the truth, we lose him. If we lose him, we lose everything. And that's what the church is supposed to do. So just four takeaways for us, four just very brief applications or just brief takeaways for us from this overview. First, let us take from this overview that even healthy, strong churches can go astray. This was a church planted by Paul. We're not going to beat that, okay? I'm not Paul. <laughs> okay. Me and Michael and the uh, heritage, Joburg. And this is the church that has been influenced by Paul for three years. We're also not going to beat that. This is year one for me. Okay. And yet this church, even this church drifted. It lost its bearings. bearings. And Revelations 2, Timothy, even after Timothy was working at Ephesus, what did Jesus say about the church at Ephesus? They are, you've abandoned your first love. Even after this work of Timothy, this church still drifted. Beloved, we are not above this. Our enemy is crafty. He disguises himself as an angel of the light. If you are sleepy, if we are sleepy, if we are lazy, be sure that even we can go astray. Heritage can go astray if we are not watching ourselves and our teaching and our doctrine. So let us not be proud when we consider other churches or compare ourselves to other churches. No, let us look to ourselves and ask, Lord, please protect us. Protect the gospel in this church that from this pulpit, Jesus would be the main sermon every Sunday. Secondly, biblical pastors and deacons are essential for a church to remain healthy. Biblical elders and biblical deacons are essential for a church to remain healthy. Paul himself installed the elders at the church at Ephesus. But now he writes that, that he says these elders were unqualified. Some of them were unqualified. Some of them were drifting. And in chapter 3 he says they must be qualified. Paul didn't say elders are bad, pastors are bad, therefore no pastors. No, the solution was bad elders out, good elders in, Right? Therefore, you shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that just gathering as believers is a sign of a healthy church. Now, this is not to, um, to diss house churches or people that are meeting as house churches, but I think this is probably one of the main things that are missing there, is just biblical leadership, good leadership, biblical elders, biblical deacons, the proclamation of the word of God. That, that's often lacking in house churches. It can work if there's biblical elders. But this is essential. This is one of God's means of how he wants to protect the church. Number three, and this is applicable for you and me as well. Pastors who are healthy are those who have a thriving spiritual life. You could say Christians who are healthy, right, as well. Because 
what, he's, what Paul said to the Ephesian elders, he says to Timothy, the, the same counsel in chapter 4, verse 16. Just look there as well with me. Chapter 4, verse 16, he says, to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Do you see that? That's exactly what he said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Look to yourself. Make sure your own heart is, thra- is with the Lord. Now, as an application for you as a church, this is some, something you can do f- for me. Pastor, how is it going with you spiritually? Now, that's not to make you feel guilty if you've never, you've probably never asked me that question, but it's okay. But I think why we don't ask that question is, but it must be going well with Pastor Rian because I'm preaching the Bible, right? I mean, how can it not go well with me? It can. It is even the best chefs. Don't even lick their fingers when they prepare the most delicious meals for others. And that can happen to a pastor. He can prepare the most delicious sermons for others while he himself is, is, is dying. And again, for us, all of us, this is applicable. The worst sins begins with the smallest neglect of your own soul. The smallest neglect of your own closet where you pray privately with the Lord. When you stop praying, when you stop reading your Bible, the motion is set for spiritual disaster in your life. So let us watch over one another. Let us watch ourselves, but let us also watch over one another. Let us encourage one another. How's it really going with you spiritually? What's the last Bible verse you've memorized? Let us encourage one another frequently. Let us... Use our church directory, which has all our members in, and put it in our Bibles, and every day pray for one member of our church. Let us protect one another's heart from sin and error, and and especially our own hearts. And then lastly, lest we forget the main point, the gospel of Christ is to be central to all we think and do. The gospel of Christ is to be central. The gospel is... It's all about what Christ has done for you. That's all about what we get when he returns. He is our treasure. Do you know him? Is he your treasure? If not, repent and come to him. Let's pray. Just use a few moments of silent prayer to respond to the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we know that your word is the lamp and the light and it will keep us safe from error and from false doctrine as long as we study it faithfully and labor to cut it straight and Oh Lord, we we look at this church in Ephesus and Lord, it is a scary thought that even good and healthy churches can go astray. Lord, we pray that you would be merciful to us, that we would not be lukewarm as a church, but that we would truly return to our first love, worship Christ, serve Christ, serve one another and carry one another's burdens. Lord, I pray for myself that you would protect me from false teaching and from sin. 
We pray, Lord, that you would add uh, more biblical elders and deacons to our church so that our church could be really uh, a healthy church. Lord, but we thank you for heritage. Thank you for your grace. Lord, you've been so gracious to us up until this far, and we know that you will build your church, whether with us or without us. Lord, help us to be part of that work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.